Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles now and open to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38 will be our text this morning. Now, we're only two Sundays removed from Resurrection Sunday. Uh, So I thought we would take a break from our verse-by-verse study of the book of Romans and focus the next three weeks on the cross of Christ. And the cross itself was an executioner's device, as you know. It was meant to prolong agony as long as possible, but ultimately designed to kill. Crucifixions were common in the Roman Empire. They were carried out along busy roadways, serving as mute warnings to anyone who would dare violate Roman law. The method of execution was designed to cause the most shame and emotional distress as humanly possible. And so therefore it was reserved for slaves and those who were considered the dregs of society. And yet in God's sovereignty, he chose to send his only begotten son, the king of glory into the world in which he would die on such a Roman cross as a substitute for all of those who would ever believe. And in his gospel, Mark records a conversation between Jesus and his inner circle of followers concerning the cross. It took place roughly six months before the Lord's death in Jerusalem. The conversation was held in a region called Caesarea Philippi. Herod the great son, Philip the Tetrarch, had named the city to honor his benefactor, the Roman emperor, Caesar, and himself, hence the name Caesarea Philippi. It was an elevated area within view of Mount Hermon from which the Jordan River begins its flow southward to the Dead Sea. And historically, that region had been known for its worship of pagan gods. Now the divine second person in human body stands teaching his inner circle while a crowd of interested observers gathers out of earshot. And so let's read our text, Mark chapter 8. Verse 27, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now for two years, Jesus 
had walked and talked and had dinner with this inner circle, the 12. They had observed his miracles and signs. They had watched as he spoke truth to powerful people. They had listened as he taught and interpreted the Old Testament scriptures. But until this very moment, there had been an air of mystery surrounding the work of Christ and exactly what were his future plans. But now the time had come for Jesus to state clearly the Father's plan for his life. I expect all of us have had one or two of those moments in our life that we look back and said that was a crucial or a crisis moment in our life. And my life has been different because of the decisions that I've made. Now in Jesus' earthly ministry, there were several of these moments. Two that stand out in my mind, we've already read in your presence today. Toby read one, the wilderness experience where Jesus, after his baptism, went out in the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. And he was tempted specifically to avoid God's plan of redemption and avoid the cross. And then there's this moment, six months before his death, where Jesus says, from here on, I'm going to speak clearly to you about God's plan for my life. And there he was tempted again, not by Satan, but by Satan's emissary, an unlikely person, Peter, to do the same. So let's look at this crisis moment in the Lord's ministry. That's our first point, a crisis moment. Verse 27, Jesus went out along with the disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questions his disciples saying, who do people say that I am? Now, like every good teacher, Jesus used questioning to probe his disciples' understanding. And as God, he never asked a question out of ignorance. I said last week, did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? Well, Jesus is God in the flesh. He is omniscient. So when he asked a question, he was using it as a tool and a means to get his disciples to think more clearly. And the first question he asked is, who do the people? That is the crowds. And I can imagine the crowds are in eyesight, but not earshot. Who are these people saying that I am? Now that is not egotistical curiosity. All of us, I think, from time to time have been guilty of egotistical curiosity. I wonder what those people are saying about me. Some of the most uh, insincere people in the world are always thinking people are talking about them. <laughs> but they were talking about Jesus. I heard about a person who was one of these uh, insecure people who had uh, egotistical curiosity about what people were saying. And, in fact, every conversation this person had was always about one subject, themselves. And uh, he had been talking about 20 minutes with his friend nonstop. His friend hadn't got a word in edgewise. He could notice his friend sort of dozing off. He had lost interest in the subject of the conversation. And so to, to save the day, he said, well, enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? That's not what Jesus is doing here when he says, what are people saying about me? He knows exactly what they're saying, but he has a point to make here. Now, the answer that the disciples give is very honest and interesting. He said, well, some say John the Baptist. Now, that seems strange because John the Baptist is already dead. So why would they say John the Baptist? Well, specifically, Herod, who had put John the Baptist to death, believed that Jesus, when he heard the reports about all he was doing, was John the Baptist reincarnated or come back from the dead to haunt him. And he was uh, emotionally disturbed by that. Some says uh, it's Elijah, um, the Old Testament promise that before Messiah would come, Elijah would come. And of course, Elijah never truly died a physical death. He was taken up in a chariot of fire to heaven. And some say another prophet, I take that to be another prophet come back 
to this. So there are all kinds of rumors and innuendos about who Christ is. And by the way, incidentally, that is a very wonderful question to ask your neighbors to start an evangelistic conversation. Who do you believe Jesus to be? In fact, that's a very good question to ask uh, those missionaries in white shirts that knock on your door. Ask them who they believe Jesus to be, and you'll know if they are Christian or not by their answer. Now, the question really he's getting at is in verse 29. But who do you say that I am? You who know me best and have been traveling with me for over two years, observing my life up close and personally, what is your understanding of my identity? Of course, Peter, being the spokesman for the twelve, is the one who speaks up, and he said to him, you are the Christ. Now, Matthew, in his gospel, gives a much fuller treatment of the conversation. He records Peter as saying, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus goes on to say that upon the rock of Peter's confession, he's going to build his church. Probably the greatest compliment anyone ever given anybody. <laughs> and less than a minute later, he's giving the greatest rebuke anyone ever received. He said, get you behind me, Satan. Now, Peter speaking for all 12 when he says that they believe he is the promised one of God, the Messiah the anointed one of Israel, the king they've been waiting for. But unfortunately, Peter and the 12 had apparently adopted the same view of the Messiah as their contemporaries, and this led to a critical error in their priorities. They, and most people in Jewish life in that day, believed Messiah was going to come and overthrow the Roman government and set up a military kingdom where he would rule and reign the nations of the world. And by the way, one day he will. That's why they asked before Jesus' ascension is now the time. He says, not for you to know the hour. And here's the critical error that they make, our second point, beginning in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He began to teach them, it says, these things. Now, this was a watershed moment. He continued to teach them these things for the six months leading up to his death. In fact, scripture says he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem, and I take it all along the way, he's telling them, we're going to Jerusalem so that I can die. In fact, here in the book of Mark, on three occasions, chapters eight, nine, and 10, he says the exact same thing in just a little bit different way. And so he calls himself the son of man, Jesus' favorite designation of himself. We found that, remember, when we studied through the book of Daniel a couple of summers ago. It means Messiah. Jesus identifies both in his divinity and his humanity, the Son of Man. He's the Son of God in his divinity. He's the Son of Man in his humanity. In both cases, he speaks of the fact that he is the Messiah, the promised one. And he says the promised one must suffer. Very important that you see these words. Mark it in your Bible. The word must. This is a divine necessity. It may be the most important word in this entire pericope of scriptures. He's saying it's not potential that I may go to Jerusalem and people reject me and I could get myself in trouble. That's not what he's saying. He's saying I must suffer. In other words, he's saying clearly and plainly this is God's divine plan of redemption. Let me say it. I say it every Easter. You know what's coming. Jesus is not a victim. 
As you write your Easter cards and as you come to Good Friday service, it's going to be emotional, but don't think of Jesus as anyone's victim. He willingly laid down his life. He knew this was the plan of God, and yet, knowing what lied before him, he set his face towards Jerusalem and went to the cross. In a word, this is God's plan. And by the way, that plan is not unrelated to Romans chapter 8 that we just spent a month in. This is how God planned from the beginning of the earth to accomplish our redemption. Remember, through his foreknowledge, he set his saving love upon the elect before the foundation of the earth. He predestined us to holiness. He called us at a place in time with the effectual calling out of darkness into light, out of death into life. He pronounced us justified and forgiven and one day he will bring us to glory. This is God's eternal plan of redemption, but it was all made possible by the obedience of his son to go to the cross. Christ said he must suffer many things. The sufferings of Jesus collectively we call his passion. We know that he was whipped, he was mocked, he was spit upon, he was stripped naked, his beard was plucked. He was deprived of sleep. He was exhausted. This is what he means when he says, I must suffer many things. He was rejected by his own. In fact, this is what Mark, Jesus predicts through Mark's pen here, that he would be rejected. Now, that's not just a generic term for not being accepted by the masses. He's speaking specifically of the authorities. This is a word that specifically means he will be put on trial and reject it. it. It's um, similar to if, say, you're sorting fruit and your task is to accept that which is qualified to be sold and reject that which is not. This is the term. The authorities, namely the Sanhedrin, are going to weigh Jesus in the balance and find him lacking and saying, He's not the Messiah we want. And of course, if you're familiar with the passion narratives, that's exactly what happens. Jesus is dragged before the high priest. He's dragged before Herod. He's taken to Pilate. Six different occasions he is weighed in the balance and found by all of those in authorities as unworthy. He is rejected. He says he's going to be rejected specifically by the elders, the chief priest, and the scribes. And the scribes, you know, these three groups are the component parts of the Sanhedrin, the governing body of Israel. The elders are... Uh, the wealthy family leaders, the chief priests are from that priestly class, including the high priest Caiaphas and Annas. And the scribes are those who are doctors of the law. They should know the Old Testament more than anyone. Many of them are Pharisees. And Jesus says, all three groups are going to get together, weigh me in the balance, and ultimately reject me. But he's not through there. He's going to die. He states it clearly. And then after his death, after three days, rise again. Don't miss this. Jesus predicted his own resurrection. There is a heresy that's been around almost as long as Christianity itself that Jesus didn't really rise again. And many who are embarrassed about the miracle claims of the Bible will say, well, there is a resurrection, but it's spiritually. Jesus is alive in my heart. No, Jesus is not speaking of a spiritual or metaphorical resurrection. He's speaking of a literal bodily resurrection. And incidentally, that's why the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to show us the necessity and the essential nature of the 
doctrine of the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus. In fact, Paul says, if Christ be not resurrected, we are of all men most to be pitied. We've wasted our time. Christianity is a farce if there is no resurrection. So look at it. Jesus, six months before his death, clearly predicting not only his own suffering, his own death, but ultimately his resurrection. And the resurrection is important and essential because it is the act in which God the Father shows his acceptance of the Son's sacrifice. And I said last Sunday we're speaking of assurance of salvation. Our assurance ultimately lies in Christ's place in the Trinity. So as long as God the Father is pleased with God the Son and we are in Christ, we don't have to fear losing our salvation, do we? And so the resurrection is very important to us because at that point, Jesus says, this is my beloved Son who I'm well pleased. He has done everything that I've sent him to do. And verse 32 says, Jesus was stating the matter plainly. Now that's to put it into contrast with the way Jesus has taught up until this point. Remember, Jesus' favorite methodology of teaching up until this point is through parables, metaphors. And a lot of times to the disciples, the meaning of those parables was unclear. And he would often take them aside in private and explain in greater detail and leave the masses sort of scratching their heads. And now he's speaking plainly, that is to say unmistakably. And, and by the way, it's clear that Peter and the other disciples know he's speaking clearly and plainly by their reaction. Scripture says Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Always a bad idea <laughs> to take God aside and rebuke him. He says, no, Lord, not so. I will not allow it, in other words. This is not how a king is to be treated. We just stated that you're the promised king of glory. People bow down to a king. They serve him. They don't abuse and humiliate him. Don't talk that way, Jesus. Surely, this is not God's plan. You must have missed it. Verse 33. But turning around and seeing his disciples. So Jesus is walking off in this direction. Peter's hot on his coattails saying, No, Lord, we won't allow it. Jesus wheels around on him. And in his vision, he sees not only Peter, but the other 11 behind him. And he knows by their expressions and through his omniscience that they believe the same things Peter does. Turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. The Bible says he was rebuking Peter. That's an understatement. <laughs> he called him the devil. And remember, the devil wanted to stop God's plan before it could be enacted. That's why he took Jesus into the wilderness and tempted him to try to subvert God's plan of redemption, which, of course, hinged upon Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. Now Peter, claiming to be Jesus' friend, is tempting Jesus in a similar way. Jesus, don't go to the cross. Implied is, let's stay here where it's safe and avoid all of that. And Jesus, realizing what was happening, said, get behind me, Satan. You're acting just like the devil. You have your interest and not God's interest in mine. Warren Wiersbe says about Peter, one minute Peter is a rock, the next he's a stumbling block. Many of us have well-meaning loved ones who in the, in the name of shielding us from suffering are working against God's will. Thought about this week, one of my closest friends, he and I met each other as teenagers in college and 
the Lord knit our hearts together, and we began studying the scripture together, and the Lord impressed on both of us individually that uh, he wanted us to be pastors in his churches. And I went and told my parents, and they rejoiced and said, we'll help you any way you can. And I went with him to tell his parents. His parents had grown up poor. His dad had done very well. He owned a large business. And the plan was for my friend to take over that business once he graduated school. And he sat his mother down and said, the Lord's called me to preach. Now, we were similar in that both of us grew up in Southern Baptist churches. Both were in Sunday school every Sunday. His dad a deacon, my dad a pastor. But the expression on her face told me she was disappointed. And in fact, she called my friend's name and said, Christianity is fine, but this is a real world. You've got to make a living. You can't be a pastor. Well, thank the Lord. The Lord changed her heart. and My friend uh, is a pastor today and has been for many, many years. But she meant well, as Peter meant well. She thought she would protect him against disappointment and poverty. And so she said, don't do it. This can't be God's plan for your life. And many of us have well-meaning loved ones who in the name of shielding us from suffering have worked against God's plan. F.F. Bruce says, none are more formidable instruments of temptation than well-meaning friends who care more for our comfort than our character. As I looked into the youth choir today, potential missionaries, pastors are in your homes and my home today. You say, well, it's not safe for missionaries to go into the world today. Friends, it has never been safe. And if we think that way, that Yes, I want God to raise up missionaries, but not my children, not my grandchildren. We are not setting our minds on God's interest, but man's. Now, what are God's interests? Two primarily. Number one, his own glory. <laughs> Why does God do everything that he does? You know the answer, for his own glory. And the other interest is our holiness. For those he has predestined, the elect, to be holy and blameless for him. Those are his priorities. The means he has chosen to bring those things about is the cross. And so if Peter had man's interest in mind, not God's, and God's interests are his glory and our holiness, what are man's interests? <laughs> in a word, self-interest. In three words, pleasure, comfort, and safety. Peter revealed here, and he will reveal even more clearly the night of Jesus' arrest, six months from this point, where his true interest lied. Even though he says, even if all of these others leave you, Lord, I never will. As Jesus predicted, he would deny the Lord three times before the rooster crowed in the morning. Now Jesus seizes the moment to issue a call, not only to the twelve, but for everyone in the area and in the world to follow him. He says, verse 34, and he summoned the crowd. They're at a distance. Round them up, bring them to me with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is a clear call, isn't it? And we talked about the difference a week or so ago between the general call and the effectual call. <laughs> the general call is what we do every Sunday. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a general call to anyone and everyone. Unashamedly, we can go to any country on earth and declare that truth. The effectual call is when God does what Jesus did for Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus came forth. He calls us effectually through salvation, out of darkness into light. But he says, if anyone follows after me, he must take up his cross. Now, everybody wants to be associated with a winner, right? You, you, you wait for some sports team in the area to win a championship and how the sales of their swag go up. Everybody wants a hat or a T-shirt to say, well, I was there from the beginning. Usually not the case. Everybody wants to be associated with, with, with a winner, a popular person, a king, but less want to be associated with a prisoner on death row. And that's what Jesus viewed himself at at this point, let alone share in his fate. And don't forget the title of the message today is The Demands of Discipleship. Now, that, that's contrary to cheap grace, isn't it? And, and what we call easy believism. All you have to do is say a few words after the preacher and uh, write your name in the front of your Bible, and you've got a ticket to heaven forever. That, that's cheap grace. Salvation is free, but it's not cheap, is it? It costs Jesus his life. And he says, here are the demands for anyone, not just the elite. I, I think sometimes we hear that, and we think, well, he's just talking about the inner circle. The apostles may have to suffer. No, he's very clear about it. He called the crowds the hoi polloi. And he says, if anyone... Is going to be my follower. He's got to be willing to take up his cross and follow me. And so, so there's three primary demands that Jesus makes on anyone who would be his follower. Number one is self-denial. You have to deny yourself. Now, a lot of times we read that as, as we've got to uh, live in an aesthetic lifestyle. This is what Martin Luther believed before he was truly converted. He's got to wear uncomfortable clothing and hit himself with a whip every time he has an immoral thought can't take any pleasure in this life, can't smile. That's not at all what self-denial means. He's not saying denying self things like food and comfort. He's saying he has to deny self itself. That is, to be a follower of Jesus, you have to lose yourself in your identity with him. You have to lay aside any claims on your own life and give it all completely and totally over to him. As Paul said, Christ who is our life. And unfortunately what I think many people in the Western world hear when we call them to salvation is to add Jesus to what they're already doing. Right? Just continue on the same lifestyle you're in and, and add this prayer. And the call of self-denial and cross-taking is very different than asking Jesus into your heart. In fact, the other gospel writers Say so not only should we, uh, must we deny self, we also have to take up the cross daily. Now we know, therefore, he's not literally saying everybody has to die a martyr's death before they go to heaven. He's just saying we have to live in that mentality all the time. So take up the cross. Every citizen of the Roman Empire who lived within the Roman Empire saw this all the time. Remember I told you they would 
line the roadsides with these crucifixions. But leading up to the crucifixion, the condemned would have to place the crossbeam on their shoulders and carry it, showing that they were condemned and guilty. And Jesus says, not only am I going to the cross, those who would follow after me in this same path has to take up their cross daily. Everyone knew who the accused by the Roman government was. And then he says, you have to follow me. Jesus' path led to suffering and death. How in the world those who preach the false prosperity gospel can read the Bible and come to those conclusions is mind-numbing. Jesus never talked about comfort and ease of life. In fact, he says, follow after me, it's going to be painful. and It might even lead to your literal death. So in short, when he talks about self-denial and taking up crosses and following him, he's talking about unconditional surrender. Because everything within us wants comfort and an easy life and to die in our sleep at 102 years old. That's how we are wired. Jesus says you have to give up that dream and follow me wherever I lead. Following Jesus is hard. And we need to be honest about that. And it's costly. But it's not nearly as costly as rejecting him. Which is his final point in verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is saying if a man or woman forfeits his soul for earthly comfort, there is nothing that can buy that soul back. Nothing that he owns. You can't negotiate for your soul. God doesn't lack anything that you have that could be given in exchange for your soul. And so this is the payoff, isn't it? Those whose interests are in this life, comfort, ease, no pain, they may get that in this life, but all their Buying is a few more years in a world that's quickly going downhill. On the, other hand, on the other hand, if you identify with Jesus in this life and you walk closely to him, the promise is of eternal life with him forever. And Jim Elliott, you've all heard of, was a young man who was called to reach the Alka Indians of Central America, South America, he knew it was dangerous, as did the others. Sure enough, they were killed. But before he left on his missionary journey, he said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, which is your life. You can't keep it. It's a point man wants to die. Now you may live to be 102 and die in your sleep. But you're going to die. You're going to stand before God on the day of judgment. People likely, as some of his friends, are saying, don't go. You're a fool to go. Don't waste your life. He said he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep, his physical life, to gain what he cannot lose, his eternal soul. And so what Jesus is saying here, to reject Christ in this life is to be rejected by Christ in eternity. 
I cannot think of any higher price to pay than eternal rejection by your creator God. And so let me plead with you today a couple of things. One, if you're here today and you know not the Lord Jesus, call upon the name of the Lord. He's issued an invitation. Whoever wants to come after me, he didn't distinguish between educated or uneducated, black or white, rich or poor. Whoever wants to come after me, there's an open invitation to come. But if you come, you need to count the cost. You have to deny yourself. You have to totally identify with Christ so your, your personal identity disappears. You have to be willing to take up the cross, which means if need be, die for the sake of Jesus. There's nothing more important to you than your relationship with him. Then you have to follow him. You have to start down that path of sanctification. One foot in front of the other, which as the hymn writer said, is full of dangers, toils, and snares. But if I could press one point upon your heart today, it's worth it. Adrian Rogers used to say, if you had a thousand souls, you'd give them all to Jesus. <laughs> we only have one, though. And if you reject Jesus with that one soul, you will have eternal regret because he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I pray you won't reject Jesus. Now, maybe you're a parent here today or grandparent, and the words I said earlier about your missionary grandchildren's potential stung you because you love them. Peter loved Jesus. He thought he was sparing him pain and suffering. But in doing so, he was actually tempting Jesus not to do the will of God. He became a stumbling block. He who was to be the rock upon which the Lord would build the church. Friends, don't be a stumbling block to your kids. You're not the Holy Spirit. Don't tell them that the Lord is calling them to be a missionary. But if he does, don't stand in the way. Celebrate that. Help them every way you can. Pray for them. And, and let them know that nothing would be more important to you for them to do the will of God. Can we commit to that as a church? That we will commit to praying for our children and grandchildren that they would simply do the will of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. It's a hard word. It's quiet in here today because we're thinking deeply about the implications and the ramifications of this. It hits close to home. All of us have loved ones and uh, we don't want to see them hurt or harmed. And yet Jesus has stated very clearly, if we're going to be his followers, we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. Lord, help us to do that today. Give us strength, give us boldness, give us wisdom. Lord, I'm thinking about... Um, some believers in other parts of the world who literally are facing this very decision today. Do they deny Christ or do they follow their own pursuits? Father, it's a great irony when you think about it. Man's greatest impulse is self-preservation. And Jesus appeals to that sense of self-preservation. He says, don't forfeit a few years in this life to hold on what you're going to lose ultimately. Instead, preserve your soul eternally through faith in Christ. Lord, I pray if there's one soul here today who knows you not, would you impress that? Father, what's in the balance today? 
not only life and death, but all of eternity, that they would not delay any longer, that they would begin that walk with Jesus today by professing faith publicly. Father, I pray you grant them boldness. Father, I pray for our church family that you would indeed use this body of believers not as a reservoir for human talent and gifts, but as a launching pad for missionaries and missions all over the world. Father, we'll be very careful to give you the praise, honor, and glory for whatever good you accomplish in and through us. We lift up these requests in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.